Glad you are here on this uh, fine uh, morning, uh, fall morning, as Tom said. Uh, probably the best weather-wise September I can ever remember, so I'm grateful that so many of you showed up uh, when you could be out doing other things. But I think what we're doing here is really important. Uh, if you're brand new to Urban Grace, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. My name is Trevor Savvy, and I am the pastor here at Urban Grace Church. And uh, we're in a series called Gospel. I know it's really original. Uh, it, we, t- we spent a lot of time thinking about it. We actually spent much more time actually trying to promote it than we did thinking about the name of it. Uh, but that's because really the primary uh, thrust of the entire book of Galatians is this idea that it's all about the gospel. And it really, it really ties into where we are as a church. So again, if you're new, let me just give you an idea of what Urban Grace Church is all about. Number one, we're about Jesus. We believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father. No one comes to God but through Jesus. There's a lot of ways to Jesus, but Jesus is the only way to God. That's what the Bible says. And so that's the grace part of our name. Actually, you can, you can learn a lot about us just from the name that we have. Uh, that grace describes the message of Jesus. Gospel actually is the short form that the Bible uses to, to talk about good news. And so that gospel is really a message of grace. That The good news of the gospel is that it's all about grace, that you cannot earn your way to God, that He Himself, through Jesus Christ, earned His way to Himself for you. And that you through faith simply accept this. And that's, that's why it's called good news. That's why it's called grace. It can't be earned. It's a gift. And so that's important to us. We're also urban. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, we're trying to locate ourselves in the center of the city. And that's not just because we want to be in the hip, cool neighborhood, although I think this is a pretty hip, cool neighborhood, uh, but because we think that there's an important reason why cities work the way they do. And influentially, this is a great place for us to position ourselves for the gospel to ring out because this place is uniquely uh, influential in our city, the Kensington area, and there's other areas of the city. And, you know, in 10 years from now, we hope to be part of a movement of churches that plants churches in the urban core. But there's something to that, that we don't just want to proclaim the gospel, but we really want to reach the city and be as influential as we possibly can. So that's the urban side. But we're also a church, meaning we're not just a social organization and therefore we'll govern ourselves and we'll order ourselves like a church, according to the Bible, should order themselves. I think that's really important. In this day and age, I don't think there's a lot of talk about what a church really is or how a church really functions. If you're interested, I think we have some of those messages up online too. But our previous series was all about this definition of what goes into a true church. So if you're interested in in knowing why we think the church should be part of uh, the description, uh, I think you should go back and listen to some of those messages because Jesus actually didn't give an organization to the world to proclaim the gospel he gave the church. And he considers himself very closely tied with the church. In fact, in the Bible, he often refers to, when he talks to the Apostle Paul, the writer of our letter uh, today, uh, when he talks to him and he says, why are you persecuting me? He's actually referring to Paul's persecuting the church. And so Jesus and the church are closely tied. The other metaphor is bride and groom. Jesus being the the groom and, and the church corporately. Guys, don't get creeped out by this, but corporately... The bride. 
uh, because there's a close relationship there between the church and Jesus. And so that's who we are and kind of what we're about. And we're in this series on the gospel. And today's text, I think, is really helpful. But I really want to pray that the Holy Spirit uh, helps me uh, proclaim well what's in the text. So if you'll just take a moment to pray with me. Jesus, thank you for delivering your church to us. It's the reason why we're here. It's the reason why we have the opportunity to gather together and sing about you and your amazing grace. And today, Jesus, I ask that you help me um, preach your good news well and that you'll help us to listen well, Jesus. I thank you for your word that instructs us. And I pray now against anything that would distract us from hearing from you correctly today. And we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to be here with us so that we can hear properly, Jesus. I ask this in your name. Amen. Well, again, if you're, if you're new to Urban Grace, uh, we're going through a series on Galatians. Galatians is a letter written in the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, I'll just get you to like gently put up your hand. Or I guess you can wave it if you want to, but most people don't want to wave their hands. Uh, we do have Bibles available for you. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, you're welcome to keep the Bible that you're given. Uh, we want everyone to have a, a Bible, and, and we'll preach it regularly. So when you come back, notice I said when, when you come back, bring the Bible that we gave you, and it will be very helpful to you because every single week we're going to try and open up the Scriptures and show you who Jesus is and how that impacts our life from the Bible. And so Michelle read for you uh, the beginning of the second chapter of Galatians. Now, let me try to give you some background to this book. If you're brand new to this book, and if you've been here before or you're not paying attention, this will also be helpful for you because it will refresh you where we are in this letter to the Galatians. Uh, it was very typical. I mean, if you can imagine days before, not just like email, but days before like a lot of letter mail where it took a long time. You couldn't just throw a stamp on a, an envelope and send it where you literally had people take letters out. This is the time in which this letter was written to a number of churches. And it's written to a number of churches in a various region. It's not written to one church. So it would be very similar for a letter to go out to all the churches in, in Calgary. So it would be kind of like a mass email sort of spam thing that, that goes out to all of the churches in Galatia. And this is important because there are some churches that are, that are following closely what Paul, the original church planter, talked about and some churches that would not have been following very closely. In fact, that's the very reason why the letter was written. For those of you who don't like conflict, just let me say this. Conflict is helpful in that sometimes it brings up issues that normally wouldn't be talked about. We wouldn't have this letter in Galatians if there wasn't some sort of conflict going on in Galatia at that time. And what's been happening is that Paul would, would go to the key cities in a region and we plant churches in those key cities, knowing and understanding how cities work. That is, once you plant a church in the city, in the influential part of the city, it would just move outward. Because that's the way cities work. That's, that's not really like rocket science. It's just a natural part of any urban planners know this and people that enjoy the fruits of the city all know this. Some of you don't like the fact of living in a city and I would say, but that's where all of the stuff you like to do happens. I always have this argument. Uh, I'll leave that for another day. Anyways, 
Back to the story. So Paul is planting churches in these key cities in Galatia, except that some people are coming into the church and they're bringing false teaching into the church. Now, how is that false teaching? What does it look like? Now, it probably wouldn't look like the kind of false teaching that's coming into our churches. In our uh, day and age, in our culture, the kind of false teaching that generally comes in is a teaching that's a little more liberal. It lets things slide. It doesn't deal properly with sin like I think the Bible deals with sin. We often don't have false teachers that come in and are really legalistic. Most of you wouldn't want to go to a church like that. In fact, that might be one of the reasons why you come here is you... You say, this church seems a little less legalistic. Well, that's, that's all nice and good, and I'm, I'm happy for that. But the reality is, most of us would not be attracted to a church where someone came in and said, okay, if you want to go to this church, you can love Jesus, but you also have to wear a suit and tie. You have to show up 30 minutes before the service. For some of you, it's like five minutes before would be too soon, but... You, you show up early to service, you, you have to pray for half an hour, and you'd be like, no, I, I'm, not, I'm done with rules of a church. Okay, that's all fine and good. That's your context. But the real context of Galatians is um, there were a number of people that had just converted from being a Jew and following the Old Testament law to Christianity, which basically said Jesus fulfilled everything, and, and you don't need to follow the Old Testament laws like you had in the past because of Jesus. Now, for some, this would be really freeing. You're like, now, what would be that? Why would I be tempted to go back? Well, it depends on whether you felt convicted of the importance of the influence of the teachers that come in, right? If there was someone you really trusted, someone who said a lot of the right things and they added just, just enough of what you understood as Christianity, you'd be tempted to kind of follow along. And that's exactly what happens in Galatians. Uh, or in these churches, is that influential Jewish teachers come in and they say, yes, we know that you're saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one in the Old Testament that you're looking for. Yes, we know he's fulfilled the laws of the Old Testament, but the Old Testament also says if you want to be identified as a true believer of God, you must be circumcised. Dead silence in the crowd. (laughs) Right? You guys are dead silent. That's I'm referring to you. For them, it's probably not really that startling, but for us, it's quite startling. Um, and if you don't know what circumcision is, um, ask your mom and dad, uh, because it's really uncomfortable to talk about publicly in a Christian setting. Okay, but this was the mark, and it seems like an odd mark to use to to like distinguish you it's like why couldn't we use like stamps or something like that instead i know i get that i i I think about that all the time but the reality is if you think about it and and i'm not trying to be crude here but if you think about it circumcision has this ability to remind you at all times that you belong to god With, with everything that's important to society you know procreation going to the bathroom all of the natural things you'd be reminded i am a child of god as a Right? That's very evident. I know most of you are like, I'm glad I'm not preaching this sermon today. I wish I wasn't preaching that. But this was, this was the mark, and this was God saying, like, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be serious about it. And believe me, you'd have to be serious about it to willingly want to be circumcised. And in those day and ages, in, in that, those day and ages, 1976 called, they wanted their phrase back. But in that culture, um, 
every, everything was kind of tied into, tied into the, uh, the, the, male, the male line. So what the husband and the father was is basically what the rest of the family was. Right? That's, what, that's where we get this even idea of taking the last name. Is it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a sexist thing as much as it simply was this was the representative of our family. And so if the male was circumcised, that meant the family followed God. Now what's interesting is if you read through the New Testament, you will see actually that some of the writers, they basically say, yeah, I know it said that in the Old Testament, but really... It was an attitude of the heart. And so, yes, you had this external act, this external thing you did to your body, but what really mattered was what was in your heart. In fact, Paul will be quoted as saying in some of the other Bibles, he said, those who are really circumcised are circumcised in their heart. Meaning, it's not just an act that you do to your body to claim that you're part of God's people. It's actually something that goes in in your heart and you you just say... I'll get circumcised to authenticate what's already gone in my heart. In some ways, it's like baptism. Baptism doesn't actually do the saving. Baptism is a, is a, a gift that's been given to the church to symbolize that we have died to our own lives and we've risen again in the new life of Jesus Christ. But that actual act of baptism does not save you, although it'll, it authenticates that you have been saved. So if someone says, are you a Christian? You can't really say, I've been baptized, so I have to be a Christian. You say, I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior and He died for my sins, and I wanted to show publicly that that was true, so I got baptized. That's how you properly describe baptism, and that's actually how you'd properly describe circumcision as known in the Old Testament. But you can imagine how this got legalistic. You can imagine that, right? It would be pretty simple. It's like, do you follow God or not? And then you'd have the uncomfortable silence of like, somehow someone's going to go authenticate this for you. You can imagine that this would be hard for people to kind of give up when it was so clear. It's such a clear mark. You're either circumcised or you're not circumcised. There's no like in-between here. You're in one camp or you're in the other camp. And so you can imagine how these Jewish teachers who had grown up understanding this is part of how I authenticate my relationship with God. And then these guys come in and say, you don't have to go through all that. You just have to believe in Jesus. You can imagine the circumcised guys going, um, yeah, let's review here. No way. You're gonna ha- if I had to go through it, you're going to have to go through it. If this was important to me, it's going to be important to you. And the Gentile guys are like, no, 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 no way. No way. But for more reasons, and Paul basically says, like, that wouldn't be uncomfortable for them. That wouldn't have been odd for them to have this discussion. But Paul was basically saying, if you add circumcision to the gospel, you don't have the gospel anymore. That's how important he was preaching it. He was basically saying, if you add this mark of the law, that you're now submissive to the law of God, you don't even have Christianity anymore. You still have this old way of thinking. And so he fought against it. And he wrote to the Galatians, and he basically opens his letter by saying, Hi, how's it going? Hope you got the grace of God. By the way, what the heck is going on in Galatia? I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. He says, if you add circumcision to your gospel, you're deserting the gospel. And you're going to law. You're making it legalistic. He said, that's not the gospel anymore. The gospel brings freedom. 
And so it's taken a while for Paul, actually it didn't take him any time to get into it, but it's taken him a while to authenticate why he would say this, because he's up against some pretty, pretty heavy hitters. The reality is, Paul didn't really find his way into Christianity that easily. He came in in a way that was very suspect to many, many people. In fact, he was basically playing for the other side. He was, he was a Jew. Paul was one of these people that wanted to love God. He's like, believe me, you're going to follow the law of God if I have anything to do with it. And so he's walking around. He's literally angry at Christians. He literally gets permission from the Jewish authority to say, can I go around and kill any Christians who are telling people that they just need to believe in Jesus Christ and that's it? Can I kill them? And when the, Stephen, the first martyr, gets up and he preaches a message and he, he basically says, I know what you're going to do with me. You're going to stone me because this nobody, nobody accepts new teaching in this religion. And you Jews are all the same. You're going to kill me as a prophet. And then they kill him. And there's Paul clapping at the back of the room going, good job, guys. One down, 100,000 to go. And so Paul is that guy. And then on his way to Damascus, he literally gets knocked off his horse. I like donkey better. It makes for a better story. But he gets knocked off his donkey or whatever he was traveling on, going to Damascus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, at that time he was still called Saul. Saul, he says, what are you persecuting me for? And, and, and Saul was like, who are you? He's like, I'm Jesus. That's not God, by the way. They're redoing the roof, just so you know. So... We prayed that the Holy Spirit would talk to you, but the loud banging is not the Holy Spirit, it's the roofers. So, so Jesus says, you're, you're persecuting me. You're not just persecuting the church. You're not just persecuting a, a division of what I'm trying to do. He said, you're persecuting me. So stop persecuting me. In fact, I'm going to make sure of this. I'm going to save you. I'm going to change your heart. And now, ha, 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 because I'm God and I can do this, and I love all... The, I think Jesus loves the ironic, by the way. I think he invented it. So he's like, ironically, you used to kill Christians. You're going to preach to people now, and you're going to side with the Christians. And they're going to kill you. And they're going to persecute you. And I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for my name. And so you can imagine the tenseness in the room. So, so Paul, who's been given this message, and he says, by the way, I had a private revelation. No one authenticated it. By the way, I wasn't part of the Jerusalem church where the church originally started. By the way, I wasn't there to watch Jesus' resurrection. I had a personal private resurrection shown to me, a revelation from God about this re- resurrection. You can imagine people are rolling their eyes going, yeah, right. Yeah, nice try, Paul. In fact, when he started preaching, and excuse me, the Holy Spirit told, uh, um, I can't remember his name now, but he told a guy to go uh, say, pray over Paul and, and, and get him to heal his blindness. The guy being sent, his name starts with an A. Does someone remember it? I can't remember it. Ananias, thank you. He's like, Ananias, I want you to go pray for Paul. <laughs> And Ananias is like, ah, just can I review here? Is this the same Saul that has just been persecuting the church, just for clarification? Like, yeah, that's the guy. You go pray for him. 
scales are going to fall off his eyes. Spiritually, he's going to be clear, and he's going to preach in my name. He's like, this is not really going to go over well with the real apostles. So you can imagine that the, the tenseness here in the church, and, and word gets back, and the Jews are, you know, these Jewish false teachers are basically going, yeah, okay, fine. You, you don't believe in circumcision, but what gives you the right to tell us what the real gospel is? And so Paul, Paul has spent a whole chapter basically saying, this is the reason why. And he lays it out. And this is the most historical letter we have. And so you can really, a lot of commentators uh, on books like Acts get a lot of their history of where Paul is from this letter. And so it's very historical. There's some biography that's going on here. Paul saying, I went here and I did this. I went here and I did this. And then I went here and I did this. And this chapter is actually not, it's the last part of Paul's kind of history. Some of the last parts. We have one more that, where Paul says what he had to talk about Peter. So he, he believes the gospel, that he's got the gospel so much, he goes right back to the original source of the church, the person that Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to hand off the leadership on earth of the church to you. And Paul goes right, marches right into his house, that's next week, and basically says, Peter, you don't got the gospel right. Let me set you straight here. That's how convicted Paul is that he has the correct gospel. And so where do we find ourselves? Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. I think Saul, now Paul, basically says, I took some time to make my way back to the original leaders of the church. I think there's a number of reasons for that. Probably the primary reason is, who's going to believe them anyways? Right? They're, they're probably going to be like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure you should even get close to this guy. Isn't there kind of a restraining order on him or something like that? Like, I'm not sure he should actually go back to Jerusalem. But, but as Paul will basically say, um, I went back to basically authenticate my gospel because these, these false teachers that were coming in were basically saying, you don't have the same gospel as the original apostles like we do. And so Paul's kind of took, almost took it on as a challenge. Oh yeah, you don't think I have the same gospel? Well, let me go back to Jerusalem then. Let me explain my trip to Jerusalem where I went back and I sat down with basically those who seemed influential. And he said, this is the gospel that I'm proclaiming to the Gentiles. Now we we shouldn't get the idea that Paul's going there going, now is my gospel correct or not? He's going there saying, okay, fine. I'll go back and I'll share my gospel and they're going to authenticate it. I'll show you. And that's what he does and that's exactly what happens. Basically, there's no additions to the gospel. Even from those who are among the most influential at the time. Tom Schreiner, who writes a commentary on this, says, Paul knew his gospel was from Jesus Christ and yet he also knew it was crucial for the Jerusalem pillars, that is, pillars of the church, to agree with the gospel that he proclaimed. Paul's a smart guy. He's not an idiot. He's, con- he's convinced of the gospel in such a way that he's willing to go at it alone and he's willing to go at it in a new direction based upon his conviction and his revelation from God. But at the same time, he's also smart and he goes, yeah, but it won't help our cause at all if people think we're on different pages. So he says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to explain the gospel to them. I'm going to get it authenticated. And so he travels to Jerusalem. He takes Titus, a Greek, 
strategic, by the way. (laughs) He's like, let me take Titus along with me. Show them that you don't need to add anything to the gospel. Titus, who's not circumcised, will sit right there and we'll see what he says to Titus. (laughs) Right? Titus is like, please, Paul, seriously, don't take me to Jerusalem. But he goes with him and he says right in the text, they didn't make Titus get circumcised. They authenticated Paul's gospel. They saw Titus, who was a Christian, loved Jesus, not have to buy into the law. In fact, if you want to read about basically what I I think that's talking about, Acts chapter 15. It could be two different um, ideas, but most commentators think that's probably what happened in Acts chapter 15. And so Titus then, not circumcised, Paul basically said, there's my proof. I took Barnabas, who was a Jew, so he, he authenticated from the Jewish side. I took Titus, who authenticated my gospel on the Greek side. I win, is basically what he said. Now that sounds really arrogant, doesn't it? But if you understand how important this is. You won't think it's arrogant. You'll see the great conviction. And so, I, again, I want to... The couple applications for us, I think, is, um, first of all, we, we must resist this temptation to simply find approval. We must learn from Paul's conviction. Some of you are, are... You believe the gospel, but it's like you let everyone else make the decision about the conviction for the gospel. You're just like, I'll worry about trusting my teacher and then, you know, whatever my teacher says, I'll follow. And I think this reminds us, I think we learned something really valuable here about conviction on the gospel. That that conviction needs to go personally in your life. That you need to be the kind of person that believes the gospel in a way when your preacher does not preach the gospel, you notice. And you can say something. And when you hear, so, you know, someone said, well, well uh, I don't know if this person is preaching to the gospel or what is the gospel. And, and you, you're not the kind of person that says, I don't have a clue. I'll just ask my pastor. I'll just ask my leader. No, I think the text basically encourages us have the conviction that Paul has. Now, some of you probably will give me a little bit of pushback and say, yeah, it'd be nice if Jesus threw in some personal revelations for me to make this known. I know. That, that's generally the argument. But the Bible also says those who don't have those personal revelations have more conviction than those who do. That's what 1 Peter says. That's when you know it's really faith and not just experience that's, that's driving this. And we, we, we have a day and an age that's, that's so drawn to, to this idea of heroes in the face faith and being starstruck. And we, we, we're not good students of Scripture often. And we're not, we don't ask for that conviction. We don't pray for that kind of conviction about the gospel. We let someone else have that conviction and we just ride on their back of conviction. And I think the challenge to us from this particular text is, look at Paul. He's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I'm not, I'm not, I don't not want to have the, the uh, authentication that comes from others who are preaching this, but I also don't depend on it. I don't trust in my hero in the faith like I trust in Jesus. I respect them. I hold them in authority. Paul clearly understands that they have authority. And he's like, basically, if we disagree, it'll destroy both of our ministries. 
that this will be bad for us. So he's, he's somewhat pragmatic even. But his conviction is his, and he says, I didn't need them to have the conviction about this. And I would challenge you, don't rest on my conviction of the gospel. Ask Jesus for your conviction of the gospel. Don't trust just in my teaching and what I think. Ask for that for yourself. Not so you can be an individual and like, you know, not that person, right? You know that person. They're always right. Just ask them. You know that person, right? You probably have one. Well, they're not your friends generally. You can't stand them. But I worked with people like that before. They're always right. You just have to ask them if they're right. And they'll say, yeah, I'm right. Not that person, but the kind of person that's like, regardless of what you say, I'm here. The Bible uses, it's a great metaphor. The Bible uses this description of when Paul writes to his young church planning friend, he says, be, be of sound doctrine, he says, so that you don't get tossed to and back and forth by waves. Have you ever seen like driftwood or a piece of plastic or something in an ocean? And then how it just simply kind of follows whatever wave is there and has no ability to like fight the current because it's just like, well, basically wherever the current goes, I go. Kind of like Finding Nemo. Anyone seen Finding Nemo, right? You just jump in the current and let it take you where the current wants to go. And Paul says, if you don't have this conviction, it's like jumping in a theological current where you don't have the ability to put a stop on it if you need to. Because I can guarantee you, one of your authoritative teachers will probably not make every wise and perfect decision. And there's a potential they could lead you astray. That's exactly what happened in Galatians. And it surprised Paul so much that that's why he would later call them, you foolish Galatians. You can't stand up on your own feet against these guys. And so the challenge is very real for us. And I guarantee you that there will be opposition that comes at you from all sides. And likely opposition that's not just from outside the church. In fact, I would reckon that most of the opposition to our church will come from the inside of Christianity of people that say, you're too liberal or you allow people to do this or you're too, too worldly or whatever. And it won't help our church at all for me to have all this conviction and you to have none. You need to have the conviction to stand firm regardless of what happens to me. Regardless of what happens to the rest of the people in your church. Not that we hope that that will happen. We're working and we're doing everything we can to cling to the gospel. We're even willing to preach for four straight months about the gospel. Making it crystal clear But friends, that conviction needs to be yours. It needs to be personal. Second thing we see in the text is this argument over freedom and slavery. This is where it really came in. Again, the context is probably not our context. We don't struggle with a lot of legalism coming into our church. I'm not saying that generally. There will come a time, generally as churches grow older, they get more legalistic, get more set in the ways. Right? That's what happens generally as you grow older. The past was way better. Isn't that, isn't that the, uh, the, there's a new line of clothing, old men rule. Have you seen this line of clothing? The older I get, the better I was. Right, you get this, as you, as you grow, you kind of get set in your ways and you get more legalistic and you begin to see things more black and white often. And you're writer, 
And so these, we, we don't have, we're, we're not there yet. We're a fairly new church that I think would struggle with the opposite way, would struggle with being more liberal about things, holding things almost too loosely in our hands. But this next part of the text is this fight between freedom and slavery. And see, that's the real battle that's going on here. The real battle for the gospel is not whether or not you have the right knowledge. It's whether you're free or whether you're a slave. And Paul puts that forth. I don't know if you... Does slavery have a bad connotation for you? It should. Slavery is not the ideal. Right? If you say, I'm a slave to my boss, you're not talking about him highly. You're talking about him poorly. If you're saying, I'm a slave to this way of life, you're not saying, and I enjoy it. You're saying, I don't want to be there, but I have to. Slavery has this really negative connotation, and it should have a negative connotation in some ways because of the way we've seen it. But Paul is saying, do you want to be free people or do you want to be slaves? Come on, let me hear it from you. Do you want to be free or a slave? He says, this is serious. And, and what's actually happening is that people are sent in. Now, we don't really know how they're sent in, whether that's like they slid in, you know, they didn't have kind of like, I don't even know if they met in church buildings yet, right? We have no record of where they met. We know they didn't have power, so it's likely a very dark building wherever they met. So some are sent in from this false teacher camp and they're sent into the meetings or they're sent into this discussion on circumcision and they sit at the back there and they're like spying. Have you ever, ran into, have you ever been part of a church? Some of you have come here from church backgrounds. You've been part of a church and it's like those spies. Now we don't do it in church. You know where we do it? The internet, right? We spy, that's what Facebook is. It should be spy book is what it should be because that's what most of you use it for, right? You don't use it to like see other people's faces. You, you see it to spy on other people's faces. She should not wear that, right? That's why you look at Facebook. And so that's how we spy now. But you know, this still goes on about churches, that there are people that spy out other churches. Oh yeah, that's the church where they get to drink alcohol. Oh yeah, that's the church where they don't wear the right, they don't wear their Sunday best. Oh yeah, that's the church where those, some of those people that go to that church sleep together. Oh yeah, that's the church where they just don't care at all about morality. And so it's kind of like that. It's kind of like a bunch of people on Facebook going, huh, there's a bunch of uncircumcised people in there, huh? Well, we'll try and derail their church. We'll try and steal people away. We'll, 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 be, we'll, we'll dislike their blog or their update. Put the thumbs down, right? I love that. Like or dislike, right? We'll dislike this. We'll see if we can shut them down. And you know what Paul says? To them, we did not yield in submission even a moment. We did not yield to them even... We didn't even, we didn't even try and argue with them. We said, no. Absolutely not. Paul knew how important it was to proclaim the gospel as good news because it was news that brought freedom, not good news because it brought slavery. I think this is one of the primary reasons why so many people reject Christianity is because they think that Christianity is essentially a bunch of rule, rules that bring in slavery. 
And I would say true Christianity is not like that, but the Christianity that's sometimes preached is a Christianity that's filled with rules. And you and I know that it brings slavery and it repels many of you and for good reason. And it's not just different from real Christianity. It's not Christianity. Are you hearing me correctly here? It is not true Christianity if something is added to the gospel. It is legalism. It is rules. It is law. And Christ did not come to bring a bunch of things you shouldn't do to the world. He did not hang on the cross saying, I sure hope people don't drink alcohol. I sure hope people wear their Sunday best. That's not why he died. He died because he said, I wanted to show you how clearly I'm so different from obeying rules. I came to provide freedom for people. Now, not freedom as we will find out later in Galatians, to do whatever the heck you want. But freedom to truly live as Jesus designed you to live. To live under grace, not under law. Not a grace that's licensed, but a grace that brings freedom and true purpose and true mission. And I've seen it over and over again in a variety of ways. Some that are really theological and some that aren't all that theological. I'll give you a couple examples from my life. I've served in places where... um, I'll give you an example. And it may be from your life and there's certain denominations that would raise this level of importance more than others. But typically throughout history, baptism has been one of those things that's been added at times to the gospel to prove that people are saved. Whether that's infant baptism or whether that's adult baptism. Generally, if you, if you look in some of the high church stuff, so kind of Anglican, uh, Catholic, you would have baptism so closely tied with conversion that at times you can't find the difference between the two. Now, do we believe that baptism is scriptural? Yes. Do we believe that it's important? Yes. Do we believe that it proclaims what we believe? Yes. Do we believe that Jesus hadn't made this important? Yes. Do we believe this provides salvation? No. It's not even close. And at times, churches have raised this level, whether that's kind of infant baptism, which is baptizing you as a baby, but, but, you know, before you, you grow older as a way of symbolizing, you will hopefully grow up into this. I think some concessions have been made for this, so it's like we do that, but then when we are 14, we confirm that that was the real decision. So in some ways, I'm like, either way, you're still agreeing that you need to consciously make a belief, you need to consciously make a statement about what you believe. But I was part of a church where adult baptism was added to the gospel. And I was told, literally, there's four parts to the gospel. You believe in Jesus Christ. You repent of your sin. You are saved by Jesus and you're baptized. I was told that. Meaning that unless you were baptized, you weren't really saved. Now, they're closely tied. And I would say if you're a new Christian or you feel you you want to become a Christian, we would say then we have an opportunity for you to get baptized. We literally, I'm not kidding you, three months ago brought in a, a, a horse trough here. We do have warm water, so you can be okay there. But we put it at the front here. And we'll baptize you. We, we, that's not going to be a barrier for us. Yes, we'll baptize you for Jesus Christ in a theater. So if you're interested in baptism, please come to me. But don't get the idea that you have to do this for us to consider you a Christian. 
that's something that's, that, that's happened at places in the church where that has been added. But that seems theological to some of you. And if you're not from the church, if you didn't grow up in the church, that probably is not an example that really hits home for you. But I'll tell you another example of something that I've run into where people have brought this in, you know, that, that brings slavery. That means that there's so much pressure for people to get baptized that that's really all that matters. But an area I think that, that has been added in terms of legalism is that people think that becoming a Christian at times has meant not partaking of any alcohol. You'll, it's very obvious we've got some freedom here because you see juice and wine. Yeah, it's real wine, just like the kind that Jesus turned water into. Right? What we believe is that Scripture says that drunkenness is a sin, but drinking is not. Why is drunkenness a sin and drinking not? Because drinking is partaking of something that Jesus made. Drunkenness is losing control of your ability to have control. Right? For those of you who have been drunk, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Drinking has this unique way of you losing control. That's what it really should be called. It shouldn't be called getting drunk. It should be called losing control. You lose your inhibition for everything. Your your ambition to... Think clearly everything. Now, I grew up in a denomination. I grew up in a church where um, I, I guess there had been so much revolt against people getting drunk that they said, let's abstain from it altogether to the point where that was really the most important thing about your Christian faith. You could tell someone is a Christian by the fact that they didn't drink. And I've still been told this, that this is someone's best witness. I disagree respectfully i disagree but this is an area that typically within the church we've we've added this sort of thing that if you're a real christian you won't drink we don't hold that here why because that's not the gospel the gospel is i don't do this the gospel is jesus died for my sins and now he controls me instead of alcohol now, we say that's fine for your conviction, but here is the problem with this. Sometimes we get so adamant about this, we want other people to conform to our way of thinking. And we want to bring slavery in. And there will be some people that I'm sure at some point will listen to this message and go, I'm going to go check and see all the drunkenness that's going on in this church. And they will spy out my church. And they will do so in order to try and bring slavery to my church. And I think we're called not just to have personal conviction, but to say, no, that's not the gospel. I remember very clearly seeing this on the construction site. I work construction in like drunkenness in a construction site in my world was kind of synonymous, right? Not during construction, but certainly after. Well, sometimes during. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was sober every time I went to work, and I like was in the 95 percentile of the other workers. Okay, so it's kind of synonymous with, with where I was at. But I saw very clearly that the gospel, that they, when I talked to them about Christianity, me abstaining from alcohol was kind of a hindrance to the gospel because they thought that the gospel was about what you don't do. And then when I had a beer with them, they were like, well, there's obviously something more to this than, than just not drinking. 
And so sometimes I think we've gotten good habits that maybe have been derived from the, from the gospel. We've, we've made them into, into an act of slavery that actually begins to interfere with the gospel practically. If you grew up in a Christian home, you know what I mean by let's bow our heads before this meal and say grace. Do you know what I mean by that? Those who grew up in a Christian home. Do you know how many times I prayed so that I didn't make other people feel bad? It's not about being thankful. It was about, I'm worried that, you know, this this is going to appear bad and people won't think I'm a Christian. And so you've got like kind of fear of people in there. But a good idea, which is to be thankful for your food, turned into the kind of a, a law and slavery to a law that really eliminated the whole purpose behind that original prayer. Some of you today will still go off, out for a meal, and if you don't bow your head before the meal, you'll feel weird. You'll feel like other Christians in this restaurant that are going to find out that I didn't pray before my meal because it might be poisonous now. Right? That's law. That's slavery, friends. Yeah, I often get this argument about, um, in, you know, don't, not wanting to be a stumbling block. Back to that whole alcohol issue, that's kind of like, um, you know, well, I don't drink because I don't want to be a, a stumbling block to other Christians, and I can guarantee you, you're not a stumbling block. You're just an advocate sometimes for legalism. And I heard one commentator say, if this interferes with legalism, he says, pass me the wine. I'll show you. I'll show you freedom. If it's an actual stumbling block, he said, that's fine. I remember my experience was I I knew a a brand new Christian and she had no idea that drunkenness was a sin and she was actually asking this question. I thought, here's a good example of I shouldn't drink because I don't want to confuse her right now. It's actually a stumbling block. She is so new to the faith that she can't distinguish between these two. But the people who had been in the church for 40 years, I was afraid to drink in front of them because I thought maybe I'll be a stumbling block to these people. I'll tell you what I was. I was an advocate for their legalism, but I was not a stumbling block because I can guarantee you their response to me taking, a, drinking a beer would not have been, oh, I guess I can go drink. Their response would have been, I don't want him in my leadership. And I, I, I bring out that harsh example just to give you an example of how I think sometimes we who are afraid of what people think, we're, we're scared of what people think, so we, we use all these colloquialisms like, I don't want to be a stumbling block, I don't want to... And actually, we don't help people be free in their choices, we help them to be slaves. We help them to continue to be slaves. And so the challenge for us is, if you're a legalist here this morning, take note. This is not simply a difference of opinion. This could, stum- this could lead people away from the gospel. Paul says that's exactly what I'm afraid of. I'm not afraid that these people will have, you know, this will be the circumcised church, this will be the uncircumcised church, just like these people will have red hymnals and these people, you guys remember hymnals? Or am I out, out to lunch there? Hymnals, you know, you used to read before PowerPoint. Anyways, it's not simply a matter of these people read this kind of literature and these... Ki- These people read this kind of literature. He said, these people are slaves to the law and these people are free in the gospel. You've got to think about this before you simply don't do something or do do something as a way to express your freedom. 
Now, we will get into this idea of do not use your freedom to do whatever you want to do. Galatians 6 will tell us about that. He said, if you think this is about you get to do whatever you want to do, you're wrong. That is not what freedom is for. Freedom is so that you can show people you don't have this law. You can live without this oppressive spirit of feeling guilty about whether anyone else is watching you and how that will be. So that's a good challenge for us this week. Think about all the things in your life that maybe were or are good ideas that you do that you really only do because you're afraid of what other Christians think of you. And I would challenge you and I would challenge me that sometimes these things are not just differing of opinion, that they actually lead people away from the very gospel we are working hard to proclaim. I love Galatians. Straightens us out. And lastly, as we close up here, if you're new, I'm in my introduction. I'm kidding. We're on last point here. But this is probably what I think is one of the most important points, and that is the fact that, that, that we have spent basically almost two chapters talking about what really is the gospel and what's really not the gospel. Sometimes you get it best when you just understand what the gospel is not. And so... Uh, Paul basically says, I, I, I went and I authenticated, I sat down with um, James, Cephas, and John. Uh, Cephas is another name for Peter. Um, so we do have a Peter here. You're free to call him Cephas if you want. Um, who seemed to be pillars. I love that Paul said, who seemed to be pillars. It's like saying Obama. He seemed to be powerful. Uh, yeah, he's really powerful. He even lists Peter as like in the middle when really Peter was the leader of the church. So Paul basically says, look it, I'm not going to play on these, the, the influence of these pillars and basically I'm not going to overtout them. I'm going to allow them to be in the right place. And he says, I sat down with them and, and they seemed to be pillars and they perceived the grace that was given to me and they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. And so Barnabas was originally, he, he was in with Peter and John and James and then he, he worked with Paul, and so he's kind of this mediator go-between. And he said they, they basically gave the right hand of fellowship. Not the, not the right hand of fellowship like we're used to, but like the right hand of fellowship. Okay? He said basically they, they, they agreed. We're in ministry together. We're on the same team. We're doing the same work. And that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. So he's like, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I do. And you keep doing what you're going to do. Both were important to Jesus. And Paul says, I've got, I've got a niche ministry here to the uncircumcised. You keep on your niche ministry to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When I first read that, I didn't understand how that connected to anything that's going on. I don't know if any of you, when that was read, you were like, I don't even... Maybe you didn't even know that was there. It seems so incidental. It's like, it's like Paul saying, you know, the only thing they said was, make sure you remember the poor. And he says, I was already doing that. Now, this to me is not incidental. In fact, this is one of these hinge moments. Because up until this point, Paul is basically saying, we have the same gospel. I have the same gospel as the original apostles. We're all on the same team. Only the original apostles said... Basically, don't forget to do justice. And Paul says, I am. What does that do? That authenticates the full gospel. 
And this is important to us because we are a young church that is learning how to live in the city and preach the gospel in the city, but we cannot forget this verse. That taking care of the poor, taking care of the marginalized in our city is not just a sidebar to what we're doing. It brings fullness to the gospel. Now, it is not the gospel. This is where we get problems. There are churches that have swung all the other way and said, you know, well, we won't even preach anymore. We'll just do justice work. But, but we're on the other side of it. We can't simply preach the good news of the poor. We have to actually make it accessible to everyone. Because see, throughout Galatians, what you see is Paul's destroying the barriers. In fact, in chapter 3, he will actually say, for, many of, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is not talking about church leadership. This is not talking about the morality of slavery. This is basically saying that the gospel is so free that it's available to everyone. It's equally available to women as it is to men. And in that time, that was very countercultural. It is equally as available to slaves as to free people, which, again, very countercultural. And he was basically saying the gospel levels the playing field for everyone. Now, this is important for us. Why? Well, first of all, it teaches us that the gospel levels the playing field, meaning that just because I preach the gospel doesn't make me more important than you as part of one of the missionaries of Urban Grace Church or someone who does not yet know about the good news of Jesus. It levels this playing field. It says we're all equal. Clearly, we're not, we don't all have the same influence. Paul, Paul laid that out for us, didn't he? He said there are some that are really, they appeared influential and he understands this whole influence thing and leadership thing and that's what god does god allows some people to have more influence and more leadership and authority than others but that does not make them less equal than others in god's eyes everyone should have access to the gospel and so it prevents us from the 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 wrong thing of some of you have heroes in the faith that's who you listen to podcast i won't listen to that guy that's that that guy's not I don't like him or her. And this prevents us from, from, from having this hero star quality to our Christian faith. Some of us have that. I, I'm prone to that. I'm 100% Trev. I've used this example over and over again. But like when I'm in, I'm in 100%. So I'm into a sport. As soon as I'm into a sport or anything, I'm like, let's find someone in that sport. Or if I'm into music, let's find some music where I have a hero I can worship for a season, until I find the next hero. So I'm prone to this as much as any of you, probably more. My wife would say, way more. But this is that, that corrective. The other corrective is that, again, the gospel levels the playing field in terms of access. And we need to think carefully about this as a church. Because some of you want to be part of this church because you want to hear the correct gospel, and that is great. I'm happy for that. But the correct gospel means there is an out, a natural outflow of the gospel, which is the gospel is accessible to everyone. You know, if you go through the Old Testament, actually what happens is you see God regularly call his people to renewal and movement and cor- correctness. And he says, I want your hearts to be in line with me. 
I want your hearts to fall in love with me. But you know what the litmus test of whether or not your heart really is in love with God in the Old Testament? Is whether you are committed to doing justice, taking care of the poor, the fatherless, and those in society that are marginalized. Until you do that, he says, I don't believe you. That doesn't change in the New Testament. When Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, you know, how, how do we know that you, we love you, Jesus? He says, you, you feed me when I was sick. You come visit me when I was in prison. You give water to me when I was thirsty. And his disciples are like, what are you talking about? And he says, when you take care of people in prison, when you feed the poor, when you take care of the marginalized, I know it's obvious that you believe the gospel. You believe in me. That's a very harsh, sharp corrective for us, isn't it? Because it reminds us that it is not enough simply to know the correct gospel. It must have a natural outflow in our lives that pushes us to correct the wrong things in our city and make them right. It's important for us as a church to pay attention to this and to take this seriously. It's one of the reasons why in Citigroup we want people to find places where you can, you can work this out. That we're not just interested in, in helping those other people in the city who are rich, but we have to... And, and why the poor? Why are we picking on the poor? Well, let me... Uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, a uh, famous philosopher, said, injustice is so much easier to perform on the marginalized. Meaning people get taken advantage of all the time. Rich people, poor people, doesn't matter. But you notice, what happens when someone takes advantage of a rich person? Well, as in the case of the NHL, they just strike. Right? They, they, have, some, they have some course of action because they're rich. They have resources at hand. You know, if someone, if someone does something wrong to a, a rich person, that rich person says, fine, I'll hire a lawyer and get justice done. But a poor person can't do that. That's why landlords take advantage of students. That's why. Because they know students don't have any money. Or at least most students don't have any money. And so the poor and the marginalized are at a bigger disadvantage than the rest of us are. And don't think for a second that you're one of those rich people. Because I think that's our big danger is that we think we're the poor people And I've said this before, if you have a roof over your head, if you have a bed to sleep in, and if you have food on the table at least once a day, you are in the 5% rich people in the world. So I'm defining rich like the world defines rich, not Canada defines rich. And so we don't get to escape from this. And Isaiah 1, 15 to 17 this is what the prophet Isaiah says. He's trying to bring reform to all those who are in his city. And this is what he said. He's speaking on behalf of God. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. That's, that's God speaking. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, 
Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. What would you assume is going on with the people? Stop, hang, stop, stop having prostitutes into your house. Stop stealing. No, that's not what they're doing wrong, he says. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. All of the marginalized people in that society. He said, I'll start listening to your prayers when you take justice seriously. Because when you take justice seriously, there's really only one reason you do it. That's because you believe that one day Jesus will make all things right. And you have been given the job to proclaim him through your activities. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you don't understand the gospel. I'm saying we cannot imagine that our gospel only goes far as what we know and speak and say. The gospel has a dramatic effect on how we think about the marginalized in our city. And if we have a great church, meaning we have great music, Lots of cool people. It's full of hipsters. But the poor walk on our streets and have nowhere to go. That those who are in prison never have anyone come preach the gospel to them. That the single moms can't get to church because there's, there's no access to it. We have not completed our mission, friends. We're not done. It's one of the reasons why we want to be located here. We don't want to make it a requirement for you to have a lot of money to show up to a service. One of the reasons why you will never convince me to take our service somewhere outside of the city where it's cheaper, but requires a car and resources. That's the reason why we're here. So that we can have the gospel as access so that someone who lives in our city on the street could still make it out to a service, could still join a city group, could still have access to the same gospel that you and I who are rich have access to. Let's close. I close by inviting you to the table. If you're new to Urban Grace, we do this every week. And here's why we do it. We do it because this is essentially where we get all our direction from, from Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus was God who became man, not who was man who became God. We believe that he was, he was pre-existent before the earth. In fact, the Bible says he created the earth and then he became man. He was born of a virgin Mary. He lived a perfect sinless life so that one day he could pay the ultimate sacrifice, appease the wrath of God toward, the righteous wrath of God towards sin through his death on the cross. That death on the cross is symbolized by the fact that we have a cross on stage, but it can be personalized here. You get to participate. What you're doing when you come up and you partake of the Lord's table is you're saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe he shed his blood. That's why we have... The, the wine and the bread, broken body, shed blood. That's what it's there to symbolize. 
I believe he paid that penalty for me and I want to accept his free offer of grace. And so that's why we say, if you're not a Christian here this morning, please don't come and take of the table. Not because we don't want you to, but because we say there's nothing magical that will save you about taking here. But perhaps we would say, become a Christian and then take. You don't have to go through a 12-step program to take the table. You simply have to admit, I am a sinner. I need Jesus. I want him to be my savior. And then come and take. Our tradition is simply break off the bread. For the first time ever, we have a gluten-free option. We want to, we, we want to say, come, partake of his grace.